when when we lose the ability to have conversations because on all sides in the American political arena, which has now become the American evangelical church arena, the object is to silence the other and disempower the other. And to have genuine conversations that produce growth, you can't squash down the polls. You have to increase the power of the polls. You have to have everybody's voice in the room and then the true merits of a disagreement, a philosophy, a position can be sussed out by those in attendance versus, well, I didn't get to say what I really wanted to say, or they don't want to hear from me, or I don't have a voice in that. And that's a very unpopular opinion on both the religious and conservative right and left. That is my friend Sean Palmer, who is joining us on today's podcast episode with the Space for Faith podcast, where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. And Sean is an author. He's an Enneagram theorist. He's a speaking coach. He is somebody who has opinions, as you will find, about just about everything. And he's also a teaching pastor at a church called Ecclesia Houston. And on today's Space for Faith episode, we have a little bit of everything with Sean. It starts with him comparing T-Swift with Shakespeare. It quickly moves to talking about the Enneagram, the uniqueness of Enneagram 3s. And we talk a bit later more broadly about the Enneagram. We talk about cancel culture. We talk about power over persuasion as the normative experience culturally and now in the church. Talk about the church recapturing its ability to have difficult conversations together, as you kind of just heard him say in that opening clip. We talk about the pragmatics of communicating to multiple Enneagram numbers and and things like preaching and leading in post-evangelical spaces. We jump all over the place, all kinds of good stuff. But Sean is one of just my favorite people to talk to. I think that you'll hear that as we kind of bounce around on all these different things. And he also has a new book coming out. It's coming out May 10th. It's called Speaking by the Numbers. We spend uh, the second half of the interview talking about that book. And so I hope that you'll check it out. And I know that you know this, but friends, uh, pre-orders are an author's best friend. They really help to get the word out there about a book. And so I know it's a little bit until it releases, but if it's at all intriguing to you as you hear Sean talk about it, I'd encourage you to go on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever, wherever it is you buy books or to your local bookstore and pre-order it. That helps, that helps the publishers see what the demand is, helps them print more, helps to get the word out more, helps them to put a little bit more effort as well behind books that they're seeing, get some early traction. So speaking by the numbers. And before we jump over to the interview, just a quick reminder that the Post Evangelical Collective, this gathering for pastors and artists and church leaders talked about it a bit on the last episode you'll hear sean talk a little bit about it on ours is coming up later this year in the fall october 11th and 12th in denver colorado again we will have more information coming out have registration coming out all of that sort of stuff but i just want to get it on your calendar save the date for october 11th and 12th for the post evangelical collective Well, friends, we have Sean Palmer back with us on the podcast. Sean, I realized you are my first repeat guest on the podcast. I've yeah. broken the seal. 
<laughs> so I'm not sure if that says something about you, if that says something like, like I'm at only like 30 something episodes right now. So if that shows like how few friends I have and that I'm now recycling through them, something you, like that. You know, I if, if there's anything, it's that when people get really bored and they're in a corner and like they think about who else is who else is who's not doing anything that I can get on the phone to <laughs> talk to because you're you're not the first like our mutual friend Luke Norsworthy like yeah always time I'm on his podcast is when he's like hey I had someone cancel <laughs> so <laughs> oh no see like we're being intentional I mean Luke is the goat of this but but I feel like we're at least being intentional here and. I feel like you would be the call, not that I don't have anyone else to talk to, but it would be like, Sean has lots of opinions about everything. <laughs> I have, and I have the strongest opinions about things that don't matter. Yeah. You know, you do. Like, that's where I reserve my strongest opinions for like, <laughs> this isn't a, this isn't a thing that matters. So I'm going to hold a really strong opinion about it. I, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours not long ago and you came up and, and we said, if all you know of Sean is just like Sean on the internet, like you think he's like the, the 60 year old white guy who's like, get off my lawn kids. <laughs> I've, I'm trying to cultivate that image. Like so hard. I hundred percent intentional, like just curmudgeonly, like, you know, like whatever millennials are for, like, I just want to find a way to be against it. So I, yeah, I, and mostly I do that for my children just to, <laughs> just to annoy them. Except for Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift seems to have found a soft spot with you. She has. She has. Yeah. One, because I like I do actually think she's like a phenomenal songwriter. There are better singers in the world, and that's a matter of taste anyway. But like this I here's what's fascinating to me about Taylor Swift. The first one is like her hustle. Like she is just in, an insane work person. But two, like she has tapped into something about the experience of adolescent young women and now post-adolescent young women, that is really remarkable that no one had, because people have written breakup songs before. Yep. And I'm so fascinated in trying to figure out what it is about her that, that encourages so much allegiance mm -hmm. and people are so like into her story. Like, because whatever that is, like, I feel like that's an avenue for me at least, for how I want to go about my task in preaching and teaching and writing because she's connected to people's lived experience. So you probably weren't expecting this, but about six years ago, I preached a series called The Gospel According to Taylor Swift. And so I did like Shake It Off, Begin Again, which is maybe five or six Taylor Swift songs. And for about two years, it was the most popular download on our website. And when I would be invited to preach and teach someplace, they didn't want to hear race stuff or Enneagram stuff. They didn't want to hear, like, they wanted to hear the Taylor Swift stuff. And our church at the time I was in living in Temple, uh, Texas, we began to see like, like a noticeable growth in people in their twenties and thirties, like during that time. And folks were so excited about it. I was asked to do it everywhere. I just actually recently redid one of those sermons, but I took some of the Taylor Swift stuff out for some folks who come around like Shakespeare was like this, lots of great artists 
who just have their finger on the pulse of society in a particular way. And she's, she's one of her. So I find her like infinitely fascinating and gifted. And you just compared T Swift to Shakespeare. I did. You're feeling okay. That was a smooth transition that you just made there. Cause, cause we're talking about a book that you have written about communicating and preaching and look at you, like, like moving us in that direction already. And I didn't even get through my intro of you. So you're, you're teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston. You're an author. You've become a significant voice on the Enneagram. You're a speaking coach. Like what else am I missing about you? It, married two great daughters. Yes. I'm married to one great daughter, but I have two great well, daughters. Yes. Um, yes. Thank you. Commas need to be in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Amateur sommelier. Oh yeah. All of the easily bored, I think is what you would <laughs> put under, under, under all those. I was like, Oh, he's the guy that's easily bored. So he's moved on to something else now. That's so interesting. That's, that's one of my, is, is that a three trait? Is that normal for threes to be like that, to get bored of things quickly? Or is that different? Threes like to accomplish things. And yeah. because we are aggressive stance people, we like to accomplish things and move on kind of looking toward the future. But we don't always like to accomplish things at a deep level. Like at a, like we don't want to necessarily in everything, in certain things, but in everything be an expert. So that leads to a lot of dabbling. But it, because we're interested in a lot of things. I mean, like yeah. as self-concerned as threes are sometimes portrayed, threes are also folks who are very interested in other people who are doing interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. And that gets, that gets tossed up. That gets, gets papered over because if threes are concerned about their self image and accomplishing things, but we're also very interested in people who accomplish things and who are doing and who we can learn from. So, you know, when I started like my, like I'm testing this spring for level two for wine spirit education trust, which is a sommelier certifying organization. Like that's all I want to do. Like, I don't want to be a, like, a sommelier, like at an actual, I don't want to work at a restaurant or maybe when I retire uh, at a, in a tasting room or something like that, but like, that's enough. So I just want to do enough to do that. Like our, like our friend, Jeremy. Right. And, and then I'll move on to something else, <laughs> you know, like I'll, yeah. I'll find myself interested in something else. That's so interesting. Cause one of the things that friends used to make fun of me a lot for was that I would throw myself into something. Like I would buy all the books on it. I'd buy all the equipment for whatever. And I'd be into it for nine months and then I'd be done and I'd sell it all and I'd move on to something else and I'd do the same thing. And a few things have stuck, but like I would just have these like like a hobby sort of thing that I would be way interested in and I would throw myself fully into it. And then at some point, like it had lost its luster or like something else was more interesting and I got what I needed to out of that and moved on. And I just kind of like I used to think that was something like broken about me. And I came to realize like, no, like i like there's something actually for me about being really interested in a thing for a period of time. And then I get what I need to out of it. And that's okay. Right. And I, I think, well, I'm at three, so I may be biased. I think that's wonderful. Like my daughter, especially my youngest, my 14 year old will say like, do you remember dad's so-and-so phase? Yeah. And the yes. thing is that that is true, but like, I am always like those things never leave me. Right. So I, I will always know this, 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 and this. So another Enneagram teacher that I really well, was talking about three's propensity to read biographies and like how threes typically really like biographies. I do think that one of the 
things that's endemic to being a three on the Enneagram that doesn't get talked about a lot is that we are extremely self-interested people, but we are also interested in other people. And what is it out there? Like there's not, when I think about it, when I sit back, there's nothing about that. I don't want to know more about, you know? So like right now for me, it's Jewish readings of the first Testament. Jewish interpretation. Like I'm just super fascinated in that. And that's not a manufactured fascination. I'm genuinely fascinated in what that, you know, what, what do they see that I don't see? Yeah. Yeah. That's super fascinating. So, um, you have a book coming out. It's slated for May 10th now called speaking by the numbers where you are talking about like communication through the lens of thinking through about the Enneagram and how it interacts with the way that we communicate as preachers, as teachers, as communicators and other sort of spheres. But before we talk about your book, we we've already, we're 10 minutes in and we haven't even like talked about what we're supposed to talk about, but I, but I got other stuff. <laughs> Cause I feel like there are interesting things that I get to hear from you that, that I want to like, like others to get to hear from. So first, first question, like actual question that I have for you is this. Do you think that it should disqualify you from ministry that you root for the cheating Astros? <laughs> um, let me tell I'll put it this way. If everyone had to be disqualified from ministry for cheering for a team that was stealing signs, there would either be no one in ministry or no baseball fans. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I appreciate that you don't have an Astros shirt or hat on right now. That, that makes me feel good. So the last time that you and I saw each other in person, we saw each other a couple of times in person last year, which was super fun. But the last time we saw each other in person was October, 2021. We were in South Bend together at mm -hmm. this post evangelical pastor leader gathering that, that we helped to put together and I would just kind of be curious for folks that weren't there, didn't get to be a part of it. I would get to, I'd be curious for you to just like talk a little bit about like, what was that experience like? What, what kind of happened there? Give kind of like your, your kind of overview synopsis when you're sharing with folks about, about what happened at that. Sure. And I would start with this with kudos to you because as a three, you know, at the end of the year, every year, my wife and I sit down and she's a one on the Enneagram and we were, we go through a process of planning out our next year. And part of that process is reviewing our previous year. What worked, what didn't work, what did we enjoy? What did we find dreadful? All of those sorts of things. And as I look back at 2021, the thing that I enjoyed the most was our, you know, three or four days in South Bend, like by mm -hmm. far and away. And so what that was like for me was being in a, not even necessarily a room. I think at, it's all of the side conversations. It's all the people you meet. It's yep. the late night conversations. It's the dinners with people who are on a very similar journey that you're on asking some of the same questions, having some of the same frustrations and hindrances and both hearing uh, from them and, but more fundamentally just discovering that they're there. Like, mm. oh, like I'm not the only one who thinks this because what that group was, at least to me, is that we live pretty much in a polarized, both politically and religiously America right now. And there are people who 
find something really valuable that they want to hold on to in an, an orthodox reading of scripture. But understanding that our readings of scripture have been and will always be in cultured, historical from a perspective, limited in what both those who came before us have done and the way they have interpreted and the way that we are interpreting. But they want to hold on to uh, this very core belief that Jesus is Lord and that has uh, a meaning for the world. And not just hop into this cookie cutter evangelicalism that just baptizes everything that the American political right does and says that that's okay because we're doing it and has replaced conscience for power, but also doesn't want to just side wholeheartedly with American religious left or the political left that says the only thing that matters is consent and happiness, right? <laughs> um, so you could do whatever if it fits into those categories. So there are people out there who say, yeah, we want to be faithful to who God is, not faithful to what we, what was handed to us or we inherited in our readings and understandings of scripture, but faithful to who, who God is. Um, but we also want to be open to what the spirit is doing and acknowledge that maybe some of the things that we inherited weren't necessarily right. Some of them we know were wrong. And the coming together of all of those people and the shared journey, which is immensely meaningful to me personally, and the conversations that were had, I think I don't use the term life-giving very often. I think that's a term that upper middle-class white people use for things that they enjoy. Like, uh, the, well, the rest of us are just like doing what has to be done, right? I don't, I don't, Life-giving is not a category for me. It's just, this is what has to be done. But if I were going to describe something as life-giving, like that would be it. That's so like meaningful. It was a really special time. And I keep trying to figure out ways to like try to convey to folks who weren't there. Like, yeah, because it felt like it was something more than what you experience at a typical conference or something, that there's some sort of essence, ethos that was there that made the experience what it was. And yeah, I appreciate you sharing all that. It was a helpful, helpful way to think about it. One more thing that I want to ask you about, because I really appreciate your thoughts on this. And we've talked about it a few times, and I love the way that you frame this. It, so when we think about, we're, we're seeing stuff happen on both the right and the left that in some sort of way engage cancel culture. Mm. And that's become a big topic of conversation in lots of ways. And even some folks like I just saw uh, the worship leader, Sean Fute, recently, like, essentially, like, generate his own cancel culture in order to get a book deal. And, like, so it's, get, you know, people are figuring out how to use it, whatever. I appreciate the way that you think about, like, here's why cancel culture is kind of existing in this cultural moment, that there's some stuff that we're missing culturally that we need to we need to re-grab a hold of. Do you mind sharing a bit about that? So the... Yeah, the issue with my issue with cancel culture, oh, I have several issues with cancel culture. One is that we are in a moment now where minorities and the historically powerless in America, because of social media, because of polarized media and the mainstream media, because of things like Trumpism, which was built leveraging polarized media, that people who have been historically without power actually do have some now culturally that they actually, they have cultural power and in, in terms of who gets to speak. And that's in many ways, that's a good thing because these people have been voiceless for a long time. 
The flip side of that is cancel culture um, always wants more because it doesn't know what it wants. And because it doesn't know what it wants, it never know, knows when it has it. So let's take, for instance, someone like someone like Kevin Hart, right, who has said what, who was going to host the Oscars a couple years ago. And then these tweets and other things that he'd said about LGBTQ people, particularly around his children, people said, you shouldn't do that. Well, someone said that's a classic case of cancel culture. Well, I don't think that we need to be in a society where people, especially in vulnerable populations, can be publicly assaulted verbally. But what's he supposed to do now? Like, can he say, hey, I am apologetic. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. And would anybody take it seriously if he did? But cancel culture just says, like, you're canceled and you're done. So there's no avenue for forgiveness. There's no avenue for restoration. That's because we have, when you, when you eliminate religion, this is not just Christianity. When you eliminate religion from the public sphere, there is no mechanism for forgiveness because then forgiveness is only weakness, letting people get away with it. The question I want to ask people is how long does someone need to stay in the penalty box? So there is a case right now with a, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania who has said some things that I think are absolutely abhorrent, but she's tenured. So what they have done there is because she's tenured, she's not in any classes. She's not teaching any classes that are mandatory for students. You can take her for an elective. But, you know, Jonathan Sachs has this great line about, you know, if you eliminate, if you eliminate voices, you actually hurt your argument. What you want is someone to make, to give people the space to make their argument as loudly and vociferously as possible so that when you win the argument, you have won the argument. And that's hmm. much more where I come from. And so I'm not for that, but I'm also from the, from a place where there are, there are some spaces where because people have to be there, where we have to engage that we need to be careful about our speech. And now every, the problem is now that everything has become talk radio. And so school board meetings are talk radio and Facebook is talk radio and protests are talk radio. No one is trying to convince anyone of anything. Persuasion has given complete way now to power and power and religion just don't mix and they have never mixed and they are never going to because they are playing two different games. T talk to me a little bit more about that. That persuasion has given way to power. Yeah. So if I want to, if I have a particular view about how the American system, political system should work, what should I do? Well, there was a, there was a time where you would, you would have to persuade. You'd have to win people to your argument, build coalition, make compromises. Now, what do you do? You gerrymander, right? What do you do? Like you, you just change the rules. I mean, this happened in the last presidential administration, it just happened yesterday with the with the proposed changes to the filibuster. Regardless of how any people how people feel about those individually as actions, what at root of both of them is like 
we're not going to try to persuade anyone because now we are, we are unpersuadable because identity has given way. I mean, thoughtfulness has given way to identity for everybody. And people who say so-and-so is doing you know, the politics of identity and they can say that, but without any identity, what we are left with is majority identity, which is in America, um, whiteness, whiteness as default. So people who even say politics as identity, what they are saying is we want the identity to be whiteness as the default identity. So white culture, white issues, white cultural priorities, those become the issue. So we don't have Hispanic or Latinx or African-American or LGBTQ identity. We don't want to actually have conversations about those. We just want one to predominate. And so... I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes sense in my head. <laughs> yeah, no. So I got a lot of things stirring today. So, so I'm seeing like how that how that that makes a lot of sense to me. How that's working itself out in the political culture. How how does that sort of play itself out in the church culture? How how are we seeing yeah power over persuasion work its way there? Yeah, I can't remember the last time that I had a genuine discussion with someone in congregational settings about something that we were working through. And there are some churches who, because of the way that they are set up, are doing this really well. They are set up as communities of discernment. But I'll give you an example. When George Floyd was murdered in the streets of Minneapolis two years ago, our congregation put together just a website of helpful tools to help people navigate racial conversations. So it had some links, it had some books, things like The Color of Compromise, Ibram X. Kendi's stamp from the beginning, you know, things that are classic, like James Cone, the cross and a lynching tree. And immediately, I mean, like almost as if someone were monitoring the website, we got like, well, you're being woke church. Hmm. Right. So the idea is like, we're not going to have a conversation. We're actually going to have an argument about the merits. It's that I have decided sort of my blue Jersey or red Jersey. And that's where I'm going to land, regardless of the merits of the argument, or even who I'm having the argument with, someone who I've sat next to or in church for multiple years or sat under their teaching for multiple years. And that's what I mean, like when, when we lose the ability to have conversations, because both um, on all sides in the American political arena, which has now become the American evangelical church arena, the object is to silence the other and disempower the other and to have genuine conversations that produce growth you can't squash down the polls you have to increase the power of the polls you have to have everybody's voice in the room and then the true merits of a disagreement a philosophy a position can be sussed out by those in attendance versus well, I didn't get to say what I really wanted to say, or they don't want to hear from me, or I don't have a voice in that. And that's a very unpopular opinion on both the religious and conservative right and left. It, it kind of reminds me of like, I used to talk about in our church that you can easily have a pseudo unity in a church and that you create a pseudo unity when it's kind of a don't ask, don't tell. Like we don't talk about our, our differences and the way that we're unified and the way that we sort of can work things out together is we just don't go below the surface of things. And I don't tell you what I really think. I don't tell you where I'm really at. And I thought we saw that happening in our church culture for a while. It sounds like what you're describing now is 
happening in the church culture is the polar opposite of that. I'm going to tell you everything that I think, but there, but I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not actually open to being challenged or changed. I just want to um, make my voice heard. Like, how does how does the church move forward? How do we create these sort of spaces again where there is uh, a lot of different kinds of people or like our friend Scott McKnight wrote a book called fellowship of difference, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like how, how do we recapture that? Like what's that looking like in the church space? Well, one of the things American churches have to deal with and COVID has been helpful with this. If we leverage it is that we're going to have to get comfortable being much smaller. So if you had a church of a thousand people that you were a part of, you need probably start imagining that church at four fifty. Yeah. Because everyone's not going to be able to handle these kind of conversations. And you have to have the you have to place the tension of those conversations and working them out in community as a working value in the church. It can't be something that you do um, every now and then. Lead pastors, senior pastors are going to have to reimagine their role in the community. Like if your role is as the voice of God or your role is as the decider, you can't do this because you're going to have to make space for other voices and other voices to be empowered in those spaces. And because we live in a world, Sunday morning is the one time in our weeks where we can a hundred percent choose who to be with and who not to be with. You can't do that when you go to the grocery store, you can't do that in your workplace, but you can do that on Sunday morning. And what we have seen is that people want like-mindedness. So when I was in California, I thought I was going to California, right? And I was outside of San Francisco and this church is going to be much more open-minded and fluid. And it wasn't, it was conservative central. And they wanted me to echo on Sunday morning, what they heard on Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck and Fox news throughout the week. And when I didn't do that, it wasn't that I was a bad pastor or a bad preacher. Like I was a bad person. I wasn't to be trusted. And I was never going to do that because I think the church is a different kind of entity in, in the world. And so the level of distrust and a, a, a mentor mindset, oh, like in highly liberal areas, conservatives coalesce in churches to be conservative, right? So it wasn't about, it wasn't around Jesus. It was to be conservative. And that has happened across the country is that we have worshiping communities who ostensibly are there to worship Jesus and for spiritual formation but they're really there for something else. And there's some who are there as a place to be conservative and have that be reaffirmed. And there are some that are as a place to be liberal and have that be reaffirmed with God ordination on top of their liberal or conservative. Yeah. And that, like that we, we, we're going to have to, as church leaders, be very plain spoken about this is not what that is. And if you're going to be, if you're like, you will be your politics, your worldview will be offended in this. And if you can stick with that, you're welcome here. If not, you're going to feel very uncomfortable, but church leaders have to be comfortable with the fact that their politics and their worldview are going to be offended in that place as well. And you're going to have folks in your pew who really, who you really disagree with, and they really disagree with you or have to find a way to love them and accept them as, as siblings in Christ anyway. I could talk to you about this forever, but I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss getting to your book. So you you've got this new book coming out, speaking by the numbers, and you said that this is. I think that I remember you saying this. This is the hardest book that you've written. 
Yeah, hardest hardest book I've ever written. Yeah, why is that? For a couple of reasons. One is that the, uh, you know, everyone thinks of it as such an enlightened place, but the Enneagram is really one of the most contentious spaces that I've ever been in. And it's like, oh, you're from this school, or have you read this person? Or have you, and it's just endless and endless and endless. So, you know, many of your listeners will be familiar with names like Richard Rohr, Suzanne Stapeel, Ian Cron, Riso and Hudson, Beatrice Chestnut. Like your folks will know will know those names. But there are myriad different schools of the Enneagram out there. And it, it wasn't until I started thinking about and working through how this book would look that I started investigating. What do people in South America, what do people in Europe, what do what do Buddhist Hindus who are equated with, you know, with the Enneagram think about it and not all the same. And so there's like, I could write a book um, about the Enneagram and someone from a different school of thought this trained in a different way would say like, oh, that's, that's um, the American Christian take on the Enneagram. Right. Mm -hmm. And they would, they would be totally right. And then people get very precious about the language and like, well, that's my language. So like he's, and so that's part of it. But part of it is how is honoring nine different numbers. And so if you've been to something like a know your number, an introduction to the Enneagram, one of the things that you will notice if you're paying attention is that whoever's preaching, pay attention to what their number is because they will be much more sympathetic to their number than the other numbers. And so I wanted to honor, I'd seen that so many times. I've heard so many people and they get on, they talk about threes. And I know that threes are pretty sensitive about the way that we're spoken about. And I thought, that's not like, you didn't do for threes what you did for your number, right? Mm, yeah. And I wanted to do that for every number on the Enneagram. And that took a lot of talking with people who were in those numbers. I had to do that during COVID where we have different plan. Uh, so it was a lot of texts and Zoom calls with people. I was like, hey, tell me what this is like for you. Tell me what that experience was like for you. And, you know, if you talk to five fours, they all have different language around that. So trying to honor the numbers was really difficult in terms of just getting it done and difficult because I was a three and I'm like, let's get this done. Like, let's crank through this, but having to gear down and pay attention and listen and hear the, hear the sentiment beneath the words are part of what made it difficult. Yeah. So I, I don't remember if I heard you say this, or maybe I read it on something that you put out somewhere, but, but you said something about that. The Enneagram has done more for you in the way that you preach than anything since you took homiletics class. Yeah. Um, do you mind unpacking that a little bit? Yeah. And that's the genesis of the book is that I, um, you know, I, I preach virtually every Sunday somewhere in the world and I got done preaching one Sunday morning. One of our church members who I changed her name in the book comes up to me and says, that was the most three sermon I've ever heard. She's not a three. And so I began thinking about that. Like, if I take seriously the Enneagram wisdom that the way you do anything is the way you do everything, then 
what I have been doing now for a quarter of a century <laughs> is preaching and teaching, engaging people in a way that assumed that people were like me. Yeah. And they're not. They don't take in information the same way. They don't want the same thing out of the charismatic experience. They're looking for different things or different motivators. And so when I started thinking about how do, how do I do that? I mean, if I've got, you know, one of our gatherings at our downtown campus on a Sunday morning, it has 800 people in it. And, you know, if I assume just an even distribution of all nine numbers, I'm missing a lot of people or they're checking in and they're checking out. So if I want to be helpful to them, I need to rethink how I communicate in a way that actually speaks to where they are, but more importantly, is a motivator for them and how they see and understand the world. Um, so that, that was the genesis and why it's been so helpful to me. The Enneagram has been helpful to me is knowing like, oh, not everyone sees this the same way that I do or understands it or would be even motivated by the same thing that I am. And I need to be very careful about how I go about constructing and delivering messages. Yeah. It reminds me, we, we did this survey at our church at one point where we were doing this discipleship program and it was using some stuff from Gary Thomas's uh, spiritual pathways. We identify like, what's the way that you most naturally connect with God and grow. And, and one of them was intellectual. And that was, that was my way like that. Mm -hmm. I best connect with God through study, through, you know, reading the theology book through new ideas, things like that. And when the, when the results came out of our church, only 5% of our church fell in that same intellectual pathway. Mm. I was like, oh crap. My <laughs> most natural way of connecting with God and communicating is only going to most naturally connect with 5% of our audience. Right. So then I'm curious about like the practicality of it. When you're putting together a talk communication in some sort of way, and you're taking this into account, are you creating some sort of like grid of like, here's nine numbers, here's how they're going to hear and receive this? Like, how does that sort of like work itself out in, in just the pragmatics of preaching? Yeah. So if you look at nine numbers, it's just way too much for yeah. even, you know, a 25 or 30 minute uh, message. And that's even less if you are a classroom teacher, because I wrote the book thinking about classroom teachers and people who speak to speak to board of directors. If you're in different circumstances, you're trying to communicate something. And so I wanted to look at Enneagram triads and Enneagram stances. So okay. uh, triads basically describe how you, how you see the world, take in the world and stances are like what you do with that information, how you um, go about taking in the information and processing it because in the Enneagram, there are three numbers that are in what we call the dependent stance, three numbers that are in what are called, what's called the aggressive stance and three numbers that are in the withdrawing stance, which is another reason that made it hard because I was having to explain this to people. Um, sure. so yeah, aggressive stance people like me, threes, sevens, and eights are an aggressive stance. And so what we are, like we are, we are, I just back up and, and explain this really clearly for people. So 
I want you to think in terms of threes. All right, there are three intelligence centers, thinking, feeling, and doing. Three numbers are dominant in thinking. Three numbers are dominant in feeling. Three numbers are dominant in doing, thinking, feeling, and doing. That just is your triad. What you're dominant in describes your triad. And so twos, threes, and fours, dominant in feeling, for instance. Eights, nines, and ones, dominant in doing. Fours, fives, sixes, dominant in thinking. But then your stance, same three intelligence centers, thinking, feeling, and doing, describe what you're repressed in of those of those three. And you see why the book got hard to to do, like sure. explain yeah, that yeah, to people yeah. in a really short, <laughs> really short um, and so what I wanted to do as a communicator is look at what you are repressed in and how to bring that up, like how to help you in that center. So you and I are both threes. So we are three sixes and nines are dominant and repressed in the same center of intelligence. I explained that in the book, <laughs> how, how that happens. So we are feeling repressed. So it's very natural for you. You were talking about before how your spirituality style, like you're thinking through stuff. You're not feeling through stuff. Yeah. So I need as a communicator to lean into feeling in a particular way that I wouldn't naturally because I've got people who are dominant in that. And I've got people who are repressed in that. I need to help people who are, who are, thinking repressed, like, oh, and ones, twos, and sixes who are thinking repressed, hate when you call it that <laughs> for, for good reason. Sure. But what that is, is about a process of thinking, a particular way of thinking. I describe all of that in the book as well. So if I've got a five in my audience, I can give them data all day and they would eat that up and think that's the best sermon I've ever heard. That's the best boardroom talk. That's the best presentation. That's the best class I've ever heard because they got a lot of data. But what I need to also know about them is that they are doing repressed. So I'm going to have to help them take that data and make it useful. You know, eights, sevens, threes, like we are ready to do stuff all of the time, right? So we need very little data. We just need to know what needs to get done. Like you will hear three, sevens, and eights talk a lot about people that they like, and they will say things like, well, I like her, I like him, because they get stuff done. That's so mm -hmm. dominant in us. But we actually do need to take a step back and move away from, um, you know, fire, set, aim, to like, oh, let's think about this. Like, let's take some time and gather the data that we need. How do people feel? We need to move from like feeling as, Right. For us, feelings are a thing that get in the way of getting things done. So I want to help people like me, for instance, to feel things, to feel our own emotion so that we can help then leverage those other skills to help people get things done. So, and then there's also in that orientation of time and how that matters and how that changes things. Like, so like every vision sermon that's ever been given has been fueled by three sevens and eights who are future oriented. <laughs> sure. Okay. And you know, four fives and nines are sitting there going like, yeah, let's, you know, let's think about 
let's think about the last time we did this or let's think, you know, and then you've got folks, ones, twos and sixes who are like just in the present moment. So if I'm going to give a, if I'm doing a, if I'm doing a message for someone, I need to talk about the past, the present and the future. I need to think about, is there a section in this for thinking? Is there a place for feeling? Is there a place for doing? Everyone who comes up to you and says like, I just need more like to do's from a sermon, from a message. Like all those people are aggressive stance people. Um, four, five, you know, fours, fives and nines aren't looking for doing and <laughs> they don't want to do anything. So I walked through all of that in the book and I know it gets a little bit hairy and complicated. And that's why someone needed to write a book about it to put it out there for people say, people who deliver messages, if you're talking to a group of students, if you're in a church, these are some really important aspects of how people live that you need to think through. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it, it feels to me like it falls in line with one of the things that I was noticing happening, particularly with like my, I, when I was teaching undergrad homiletics and, but then in some of like the coaching relationships I would be in with, with preachers is that it often felt like a miss was that they had this content that they wanted to deliver in some sort of way. And they're just like, I just got to get this out. And it became about them that it was mm -hmm. like, oh, this, this sermon is, I can't think of a better way of saying it right now. So I'm, I'm just going to say, like, <laughs> I would say like, it's a masturbatory sermon, right? Like it feels like it's for your own self-pleasure, but you're not actually doing something for the audience. And, and so this sermon does nothing if it's not actually oriented towards who your listeners are and what they're doing, it, it feels a bit like this is trying to take in a really thoughtful way. Like let's, let's take that to another level. Let's not just say it's about the audience, but let's like actually understand the way that our audience processes information, the way that they're going to receive this, the, what they're going to even maybe have some immediate walls against what mm -hmm. they're going to receive more easily. Uh, I mean, is that a fair like sort of stance for the way that you're trying to help communicators approach things? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Because the first two chapters of the book are about this very thing. And as I say, the problem with most of our communication is that we're talking to ourselves and to the point that I, and I'm pretty strict on this, even with my speaking clients, uh, if you're in a church setting, the people in your congregation are hearers, not an audience. Like they are not there for your performance. Faith comes by hearing and you need to see them as hearers. You're making a proclamation and it's a proclamation for them on their behalf, not the rabbit that you're interested in hunting, not this particular thing that you want them to do. That's manipulation. And a lot of church leaders fall into that. Like we got into a room and we decided what you're going to do. And now I'm going to communicate to you in a way to get you to do what we want. Like no one wants a relationship that's built that way. And so what I say in the book is that speech acts are about the hearer, not the speaker. And I really, you know, if no, if people don't take very much away from, from the book itself, I want them to take that reorientation of what it is that we're doing in those moments. Like, this is about, this is about them, not about you. I mean, Fred Craddock says that you are there to say what they would say if they could say it. That's and, really good. And there are some limits to that, but fundamentally, this is about proclaiming the gospel in the, in the 
for me, it was preaching. And there are aspects in the book that aren't about preaching. It's about, about other public speak act, speech acts. But you are there for them. You're, in, you're there in service of them. They are not an audience for you. That's good. So thinking about our audiences, many of the folks who tune into this, they're in leadership in churches, in, in post-evangelical churches, a lot of them. So they've got an audience that are in some sort of process of deconstruction, reconstruction, or in some sort of like experience of that. I'm kind of curious, like, how do you think communication in churches like that works differently than it did in previous generations in the way that like people taught us to preach in certain ways that worked in a certain kind of church context. And it feels like that church context is moving away. Mm-hmm. Like how, how does our communication change? Yeah. So there was a time and you and I are probably actually on the tail end of this rather than the center of it. But there was a time where either, either from the denomination or from a lead or senior pastor, there was much more of a sense of thus saith the Lord coming down from the pulpit to the pew. That world doesn't exist anymore. And the reason I know this is, and I'll say this, our, this is the, this is the precursor, what I'm about to say, because I don't want people to hear animosity. We had a great pediatrician. His name was Steve, his, her, his wife is Brene Brown. So we have known them for a long time for 18 years now, before she was Brene Brown. And here's the way it works at my church. I have much more success saying Brene Brown says X, Y, and Z, and then showing where scripture has said that already. than if I said, the scripture says X, Y, and Z. So some of it is we are so deeply enmeshed in the hermeneutics of suspicion in post-evangelical churches that we have to be very aware of worldly wisdom and where it intersects with the church. And that people aren't going to take our word for it. But when I was raised, and we were both raised in restoration churches. So when we were kids, we were taught by, no matter who says what, like you check it out, book, chapter, and verse, right? Like that you go and read the Bible. And the Bible was an authority in and of itself. That is no longer the case. The Bible is not an authority in and of itself. Biblical wisdom is not to be taken by many of our hearers as uh, for granted. What happens to us now is in post-evangelical spaces is that we have to really and realistically deal with the abuses, the hurts, the traumas, everything that's in the headlines and say like, we know this is real. We know that you know about this, the abuse at X church and Y church and how this happened. And we're not gonna tell you, we're not gonna get up here and just say, oh, we're different and expect you to believe us. We have to demonstrate that in real world ways, which means that we have to take the voice of the congregation seriously, that we have to listen much more to what their concerns are, what their questions are, and not dismiss them because we think they're being secular or worldly or coming to us, to us from the left or whatever. Like, um, they actually, they will not stand around and wait because some church leader said, X, Y, it doesn't matter what pastor or elder at a church says about anything. Like they arrive at a different conclusion. You either get engage them with their conclusions about the world or they will just move on. And I think that's really important for preaching and teaching. So does preaching and teaching still have a place in, in post-evangelical churches? Absolutely. And like there are folks, at, but depends on what you want it to do. Okay. So, 
I get a lot of pushback on the internet from really thoughtful people who say, who make the argument that preaching isn't discipling people. Well, it's not supposed to. <laughs> That's not the function of preaching. The function of preaching is to proclaim a new reality in the midst of an old reality, a world that is breaking in uh, to this world. And, and to give people, open up space and imagination for people to live into that reality. That's what preaching is. If you, you can, cause you can listen 30 years of preaching and not pray any better because that's a discipleship act. Um, so depending on what you want preaching to do, depends on whether or not it's still good. Like there was an, there was an article I was reading earlier today about how younger people are actually wanting more longer in-depth sermons. We hear the same here at our church. People don't want less preaching. They want more. So um, I think there is always going to be a role for preaching because faith comes by here. I don't think it's an incidental act. I don't think that it was passed on to the church as, hey, here's something you could try. There is, to, in, to my mind, an inherent power in the proclamation, the public proclamation of the word of God. And they're all because it's inherent it'll always be that way that's so good that's so good sean you genuinely you're one of my favorite communicators i learn so much from you every time that we're together every time i uh watch you preach i learn so much so i'm stoked for your book friends it is called speaking by the numbers comes out may 10th and where sean where do people find you on the internets <laughs> that is a great question so, you know, I'm on all the things, Facebook, Instagram, and we hope probably by the time that this goes live, SeanIsaacPalmer.com will be, will be live. So you can find me at SeanIsaacPalmer.com. You can also find me at SpeakingByTheNumbers and YourPreachingCoach.com. But the easiest, if you're interested in the book, SpeakingByTheNumbers.com is the best place to start. Wonderful. Love it. Thanks for taking some time today. It's always good to see you. It's always great to talk.